I'm Mark Walsh, and coming up on today's show... At the end of the day, if you believe that your mission is to make the world a better place, you have to create the conditions in which that happens. And since at the end of the day, we all live inside of this sort of matrix of narrative and stories, you want to influence those things. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. What's Working in Washington? I'm your host, Mark Walsh. Our conversation today is with Sean Gibbons. Sean is the CEO of the Communications Network here in Washington, D.C. He's been at all sorts of communications companies and media companies like CNN. Heard of them? But Sean and his colleagues have a fascinating niche, actually more than a niche. They deal with large philanthropies like the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Case Foundation here in Washington, D.C., and other not-for-profits in basically sharing ideas, successful and not so successful, and tactics and tools on how to get their message out. Sean and his team come in, add value, and making sure that the Ford Foundation and all the great work they do is known by people other than the Ford Foundation. Here's our conversation. Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Mark. So the Communications Network has been around for a while. Give me the origin story and what the last decade or so has meant to the organization and your recent kind of energy and what that's brought to it. Quick history lesson. About 40-some years ago, there was a gentleman named Frank Carell. Frank was hired as the first ever communications lead at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which Perfect. works on health, right? Yeah. Uh, Frank went into this job. He'd worked in corporate America. He'd had his own shop, I believe, and I think he'd done a few in-house things, but he never worked in philanthropy. So he arrives on the campus in Princeton, New Jersey, where Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is located. It's a beautiful space. It's kind of like a university without students, meaning it's absolutely beautiful and super quiet. Yeah. He's a comms guy, so he's loud and a little bit kind of rambunctious as we tend to be. But he spends the first two or three days staring out the window at a beautiful wildflower meadow. And every day he comes home and he appears to look a little bit more frustrated. And after the third or fourth day, his wife said to him, honey, like, you don't seem super happy. How's the new job? What's going on? And he's like, I'm stuck. I know comms. I just don't want to make a mistake. And I don't know what to do to get these folks started in a way that's going to make my mark and make a good impression and be effective. And she said, well, that's great. That's great. Why don't you ask for help? Why don't you call somebody? And this is in the late 70s, back when long distance costs money and folks yeah. didn't have people on speed dial on LinkedIn or whatever. So Frank went to the office the next day and, and like a smart husband, listened to his wife, yep. picked up the phone and called information in New York City. And he didn't know any other philanthropies because they hadn't proliferated maybe the way they have over the last decade or two. But he knew the name Rockefeller and he thought, I think they have a so he called the New York City operator, said, Rockefeller Foundation gets put through. Folks at Rockefeller pick up the phone, whoever was manning the front desk. He said, is there anyone there with communications in their title? And they said, yeah, let me put you right through. Puts him through to this gentleman, picks up the phone and says, oh, hey, I heard that you'd got hired. Congratulations. How can I help? <laughs> and Frank said, I'm stuck. And the person said, not to worry. Listen, hop the train. Come up next week. I'll buy you lunch. We'll talk about it. And that's what happened. Frank joins this gentleman from Rockefeller, and the two of them have a wonderful lunch, and they agree by the end they're going to do it again. So in six weeks' time, the idea is Frank will recruit some colleague from down in the Philadelphia area near Princeton. The person from Rockefeller will get a colleague from New York. I believe it was a person from Ford Foundation. And so two becomes four. It's another smashing good group, great conversation. Frank's feeling really empowered, and they start thinking, 
gosh, we should be doing this more often. Four so becomes eight. I can do four the Four becomes okay. eight. Yeah, it's, it's what's called the network effect, right? Yeah. And so for the, the next five or six or seven years, they're going to philanthropy conferences, and they are like every great communicator is a pirate. They're running to the back of the room. They're grabbing a table, and they're having a coffee clatch. And so eventually they realize this is actually something we should staff and we should take and turn into. We're, we're foundation people. We could give a grant and create a nonprofit, and so they did. And so for the next 20, 20-some years, it was exclusively the province of big philanthropy. So it was the Ford Foundation talking to the Robert Wood John, Johnson Foundation, talking to the Gates Foundation, talking to the Knight Foundation. Fast forward to about 2012, and obviously there have been transformations across the communications landscape. We're all receiving a lot more information. Every, really? I have not noticed that. You have not that. noticed that, right. Yeah. We are living in the golden age. We are living in what I call the information age, right? There you I go. Mean, we have... As human beings, we receive more information on a daily basis, hell, on a minute-to-minute basis, than any humans in history. It's yeah. extraordinary. But uh, it, there is some art and skill involved in doing this work. And so the folks, God bless them, on the board of the network at that time said, we may not be as effective at this as the folks we're giving money to. Let's invite in our grantees. And so for the last, I guess now, decade plus, the network has been a space for both folks in the big foundation philanthropy world as well as the nonprofit space to gather up and talk to each other. So we think of our mission as uh, connecting folks who work in what we call communications for good. These are all the communications professionals at the do-gooder organizations across our society. So we get them together, we connect them with each other, we gather them up from time to time in person because that's how you build community, and then we keep them informed because if you work in this space, work in this field, you better be a lifelong learner or you're going to be at the back of the bus pretty quickly. Sean Gibbons, we've done a bunch of shows. That's the best origin story we've ever had here in what's working in Washington. Oh, good, and I had nothing to do with you, it. Exactly. That's the beauty of it. No, it's just it's a wonderful spawning, and then you're, the detail you give of how it grew because it all made sense and I love the Rockefeller Foundation story. I'm a big fan of the Rockefeller Foundation. The CEO is a, is a, is a, is a pal of mine now. And I, I, I've always, you know, they're, they're a bedrock name, to, to your point. But to what you do every day at the Communications Network, how common are the problems amongst the original members, sort of the philanthropies, and then the sort of the newer customers or members that you're seeing? And if there's not commonality, what are some themes between the two? Well, I guess at the end of the day, all of these organizations are fundamentally, whether you're a foundation or a nonprofit, on some level, you exist because you look at the world and you're dissatisfied. You say, I could put a shine on this. I can make that a little bit better, right? And that's what gets you out of bed in the morning. The challenge is, is that just because you think you have a good idea doesn't mean that the rest of the world does, right? So you have to find ways to, and we all as humans live in story, find ways to gather up people and help them see the world from your perspective. And that's a communications challenge. So whether you're working at a foundation or a nonprofit, the challenge is they're all in the business of trying to be effective. Right? They're all trying to take their ideas and give them life. Outcomes. They want outcomes. They want outcomes. You know, it's, there's, a, there's a children's book. I have a couple of young kids, and there's a beautiful book that's out there called What Do You Do With an Idea? And the, the end of the story, I hope to, not to spoil it for everybody, is Spoiler an alert. idea actually only comes to life when it leaves your care and goes out into the wider world and finds an audience and really comes to life. Yeah. Really scales, Right. Fundamentally, that's what foundation and nonprofit communicators are trying to do. They see a better tomorrow, and they're in the business of trying to help people see a shared vision of what that future might look like. So there's a lot of commonality because you might imagine if you're a funder who's working on education issues and you're a nonprofit working on education issues, you probably are both interested. You may have different ambitions or goals, but at the end of the day, you think education is fundamentally important and you think it's something that people should be paying attention to or seeing new paths forward. And so there's a lot of commonality. 
uh, between them. But then, of course, there are the tensions of if you're a funder, your business is fundamentally, you're kind of like a venture capital firm. You're investing in ideas. And if you're a nonprofit, you're supposed to be engineering outcomes, right? There, it seems to me there's a bright, shining line. Let's take a philanthropy like Robert Wood Johnson or uh, Phil and uh, Gates Foundation. Uh, a bright, shining line in comms between promoting the fact that you exist and, to your point of venture capital, getting deal flow, so to speak, in, and then the other side of bragging about how successful you are. And I've never, I've rarely met a philanthropic executive who is a bragger, right? So do you- well, They don't need are, to be. They're the apex predators of our, of they got our the marketplace, money. right? They got the money, right. Like, it, if, if the Gates Foundation has a great year, it has no material impact on the Ford Foundation. Interesting. So non-competitive arena- which hence, I guess, is the which whole point of the network. Which makes a wonderful space for people to collaborate, which, yeah. which is one of the really extraordinary joys of my job is that in many spaces and places, IP is incredibly valuable. And you don't share state secrets, right? Yeah. Whatever your competitive advantages are, you would be – Nike never wakes up, picks up the phone, and tells Reebok what they're doing next week. Whereas the Ford Foundation may say, hey, you know what? We've done a ton of research, and we figured out a really effective way to talk to people about X. Mm-hmm. In order for that to become commonplace, it's in their interest to actually ensure that other organizations who may be working on that issue have the same information. Rising tide. The same playbook. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly right. So, but that is that true across think tanks and some of your other clients? Because my sense is that think tanks do seem to have a reputational kind of IP identity that they want to protect. Or am I misperceiving that collaboration. I think there's probably at the executive or maybe a board level, sometimes some challenges, leadership level. Yeah. But I think amongst the communicators, at the end of the day, the stakes for them are they're being judged on how effective are we? Are we getting our ideas out into the national conversation? There's tools to do that. And so collaborating and helping each other, the person who helps you tomorrow might be your employee next week. Yeah. We're talking with Sean Gibbons. Sean is the CEO of the Communications Network, and you just heard its origin story and some of the challenges and opportunities that it that it presents. So how do you get members? And like how many members are I have no are idea. To be honest with you, when I arrived in the in no this, idea. in this seat, we had about 400 members and we now have about 3000. It was again fairly narrowly focused on philanthropy when I arrived. I think we had the ambition of bringing in nonprofits, but uh, to tell you why we suddenly have 3000 people beats the hell out of me. We don't do any marketing. So wow. a lot of it I guess is just word of mouth. And I know for myself, when I was hired into this job, when I saw the posting and I was invited to apply, I thought, God, I was working at a think tank at the time. I was a communications director. I thought to myself, I could really use an organization like this. This would be incredibly helpful. I run into big, scary monsters all the time, and I don't have the answers. And I can't go to my boss and say, I don't know. But I would love to have a whole network of folks I could lean on and say, I'm stuck. Can you help me? And inevitably, that seems to be what happens in our experience is that someone solved your problem last week or they're going to be running into the challenge you just finished solving next week. And so it's a, it's a really lovely culture. that we Are there analogs, like I know the Business Roundtable and National Associated Manufacturers, are there analogs to what you're doing that you find um, in, in, intriguing in trade associations or other groups, or do you really think you kind of stand alone in this collegiality and, and sharing moment? Well, I've never worked for a trade association, so I can't say. I'm sure what brings them together is obviously common cause. Yeah. So that's something we probably share. I think maybe my experience has been is that there's a very collaborative culture yeah. uh, that exists within our sector, uh, which is a beautiful thing, and I'm grateful for it. I think the other thing folks don't realize about our sector is how big it is, right? So it's a trillion dollars a year. It's bigger than Hollywood. Uh, and yet, wait, you wait, don't wait, wait, see- wait. What's a trillion? 
Philanthropic? The philanthropic sector. The do-gooder sector of the United States wow. annually is about $1.2 trillion, give or take. Maybe if the recession's on a, uh, on a bad day, maybe yeah. it's a little bit below that. But but most years when you're sort of all in thinking about grant making and just operating funds and all the rest of it, it it's a it's a big chunk of the American economy. Wow. So what about, um, and forgive the term because it sounds ageist, but the leadership being X years mm-hmm. and often X gender versus the rise of the Facebooks and other tools and tactics, uh, are you or do you see a collision between those two rocks in a hard place, so to speak? I think that's actually a really interesting question because I think there has been a little bit of a generational divide. I think for a very long time, I've heard my colleagues say that for many philanthropies in particular, you shall be known through your good works. Right? You will not, to your point, brag about what you do. And really, there's no need to. But at the end of the day, if you believe that your mission is to make the world a better place, you have to create the conditions in which that happens. And since at the end of the day, we all live inside of this sort of matrix of narrative and stories, you want to influence those things. And yep. so I think that's, uh, that's a place where it's, it's, it's becoming obvious to everybody that there is no one place that maybe it feels quaint and a little, uh, a little dated now, but it used to be you could turn on the evening news. That was where I began my career. And there was one story that dominated the headlines, and you could exactly. reasonably expect most Americans knew that story. Whatever their political ideology, wherever they might live, yeah. we had a common cause around, this is the headline of the day. That doesn't exist anymore. That's Sean Gibbons. He's the CEO of the Communications Network right here on What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh. We'll be back with more about what Sean and his colleagues do after this. Every week on What's Working in Washington, we talk to power players about innovation in the federal government and how business in the region is keeping us competitive. If you are a D.C. insider and want to know what leaders in other industries are talking about, we give you that insight. If you know someone we should be talking to on our show, let us know. We want perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. You can reach out through our website or through Twitter. And we love bringing those new voices to our audience. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back on What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh. We're excited to have once again with us, Sean Gibbons. Sean is the CEO of the Communications Network, a fascinating organization about collegiality, collaboration for both not-for-profits, philanthropic organizations, and all sorts of folks like that. Our time together now, I want to focus on two Ts, transparency and tactics. Okay. Tactics, because you're the pro. We'll get to that in a second. But transparency. Um, we chatted earlier, you know, sometimes the, the common man or woman would see the Ford Foundation or Robert Wood Johnson or the Gates Foundation and say, they just give money to their buddies from, you know, from Andover. And and this idea of how do you get into the uh, the Ivy halls of those august institutions is part of your job or do you find that your members, part of their job is breaking down that perception and, and appearing and acting more transparent to the broader universe? I think that's been a challenge for philanthropies broadly over the last probably 20, 30 years. And for many, many years, to know the Ford Foundation was to walk by a building uh, on the east side of Manhattan 
right? Been there uh, many times. Been there many times. Okay, so gorgeous. But and it's a gorgeous. I call them all palaces for good. The philanthropies around the country. <laughs> well have these said. Wonderful buildings, right? Well said. But it really meant, unless you were in proximity, chances are you didn't know them unless you were watching PBS or NPR, and at the end it was brought to you by, right? right? But with the advent of the Internet, we all now have the ability to knock on their door on any given day and say, what's going on? And so the Ford Foundation's website is really a grander headquarters. Same true, true for the Gates Foundation or the Case Foundation or MacArthur or any number of them. They've all been grappling with this idea of how do we do a better job of explaining who we are, what we're about, what we're trying to achieve – and how folks can get involved. Uh, and that's obviously a communications challenge. So it's been a really interesting place for folks in our field over the last little while to sort those things out. I think generally the disposition is to try to be more transparent. Again, I think there's a generational shift where if it's true that people might ask that question, what's the Ford Foundation doing and why? Well, someone's going to answer that. In this era that we live in, someone will see that question and they will answer it, and it may not be the Ford Foundation. So it's it's in their interest to do the best job they possibly can to try to explain to people who they are, what they do, why it matters, and how you might engage. So with 3,000 members, you must see a lot of different behavior sets. But I'm interested if, if in the foundation arena, if the foundation is named after somebody that is still alive and visits the office every day versus Ford, where mm-hmm. it's not, or Rockefeller, or at least you know the original John D., is there a difference? Does Bill Gates or Steve Case or those names, does that naming and personality have a different outcome or relationship with your organization than ones that are that are 50, 100 years I old? I think, you know, whether you have a living donor or whether you're a legacy organization, if you have a professional staff, you're hopefully listening to the to the good counsel that you're getting from okay. whatever your executives, whether it's a communications person or an HR person. Yeah. Um, the distinction and difference might be that uh, Bill Gates has a public profile and he's out in the world, whether he's representing the country uh, – country, the company, Microsoft might be a country at this yeah. point with their income, GNP. with the GDP, GDP yeah. right? Uh, but there's also obviously an opportunity for the Gates Foundation because Bill Gates is quite passionate about a number of issues for him to be your best. He's in many ways, I guess the way to think about it is he's the communicator in chief. So yeah. when you do have a living donor, you have an incredible asset to deploy uh, so, if they're skilled. I mean, in some cases, you may not want that that person out in front. So uh, I know Mark Benioff from way back in the day before he really grew Salesforce. Um, and he's an example to me of stupendous recent wealth, mm-hmm. often tech, um, who clearly wants to try and do the quote right thing. I'm using air quotes now for those yep. listening. Um, how do you, first of all, uh, are mem- are people like that or entities like that also members? How do you approach them to become a member? Are they no. sort of do they 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 think their their stuff doesn't stink and they they don't need your help? All, all the above? Well, I guess I would say uh, for-profit companies are not part of the network, but it really is exclusively. But no, he formed the, a foundation, I guess. Oh, I mean, yeah, the so, Salesforce yeah. Foundation. Yeah, as a matter of fact, we've benefited from uh, Salesforce.org, which is the right. non-profit. I don't know if that's the foundation. I might be conflating. Two Close things. enough. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, look, at the end of the day, we are all living in this incredible era of information. And we're all, if you're a communications professional, struggling to do this work well, right? Yeah. For many, many, many years, I think it was the idea of most folks in leadership that your comms person was the English major who writes nicely, right? Yes, That's no longer true, right? There is a tremendous amount of science and discipline and rigor that can be applied to communications. If you ever watch the show Mad Men, for years you would see them going out and doing market testing and focus groups. If you work in – we're talking about Washington. Politics does lots of polling and and gathering data and information to try to understand public sentiment. Well, that has application to folks in the do-gooder space as well. And so you're seeing that – that kind of uh, discipline arrive in the do-gooder space, and it has been for the last oh, probably decade or so. 
Great segue. But then again, you're in the business. So my segue into tactics, as a student slash manager uh, leader in, in this arena, you must see some good, bad, and ugly stuff going on. Are there tactics you see other entities use, either not-for-profit, NGO, corporate, philanthropy, whatever, that you find are really cutting edge and you you deploy yourself? Are you seeing other entities, you don't have to name them, but other entities kind of sticking with old school stuff that really isn't kind of working? How do you see the marketplace? Well, I suppose it depends. I mean, any good communications professional, and I would say I'm probably at the back of the line amongst my colleagues who are people far more skilled than I, would say it's essential to know, like, what are your objectives and who are your audience, yeah. right? And you adapt. So there isn't one particular tactic that might work. It might work for a particular audience, yeah. right? Yeah. So being agile, I think, is incredibly important. And being willing to say, you having the humility to say, whatever my instincts are, they might be wrong. Yeah. I may not be the best person to understand what a 80-year-old retiree in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan needs to hear in order to understand the message we're trying to deliver, or even the messenger who's going to be most effective reaching right. that person, right? So I think one of the things that's really exciting about our space is that there's a real recognition, a real evolution that's happening within our field. But I will tell you, there's a lot of stories out there. I think one of the most extraordinary stories that exists in the nonprofit or foundation space is a story we can't tell enough, and it's the story of, uh, of marriage equality. And I'll distill it down to you in a, in, in a kind of a simple headline. 37%, 77%. 37% is where the American public was back in about 2008 when Barack Obama was elected president. You may recall that in 2008, California had a ballot initiative on the books. The same day that people went to the polls to vote for Barack Obama in California, marriage was on the, was on the ballot. Mm -hmm. Barack Obama won going away, marriage lost, much to the surprise of people uh, in the advocacy space. Subsequently, a number of folks who were uh, – for folks in the advocacy community and the LGBT community, probably considered at least early on heretics. After that loss in California, they said, this is going to come back up again. What might we do differently? Mm -hmm. And the answer for a lot of folks in the, in the advocacy space, you know, clearly stunned by this loss they had not expected, was we just need to do more and better and louder. And the message that had occurred in 2008 in California was a message around fairness. It was the you may remember this, the 1,132 rights and benefits that confer to you as a straight couple when you get married. Well, those should be offered up to gay couples as well. Right. That's fair, right? And it's a legalistic argument. And if you have young children in your house, you know, fairness is very compelling. Right. But most parents do not run their households based on what's fair, right? Yeah. Or maybe oftentimes. So suffice to say, a number of people, including Evan Wolfson from a now defunct uh, nonprofit called Freedom to Marry, and they shut down because they actually achieved their mission. Imagine yep. that said, it's possible that's not the right message. Let's go do some, and this is a really interesting thing, communications research. Go find yeah. out what got us stuck in California. And so they did it in a really smart, strategic way. They went and looked in Maine, Maryland, Minnesota, and Washington State, the next uh, states that were expected to have this question on the ballot next time during the midterms in 2010. And they went out and they said, it's possible that this fairness argument might work, but it's also possible we're wrong. And so they worked with a woman named, uh, boy, Lisa Grove was her name. And they got funding from the Haas Fund in Berkeley, California, and the Gill Foundation in Denver. And they spent months meeting with focus groups and testing messages and even building up like sort of faux TV ads that they could test with people. And they stumbled upon something that was sort of hiding in plain sight, the marriage vows. For richer, for poorer, and sickness and health, the actual thing that people, straight people experience when they get married, the institution of marriage, right, is built around love and commitment. And as soon as they 
figured that out, it was like, oh my goodness, talking to, they also did something very smart. They didn't just talk to the general public. They specifically found moderate, middle-of-the-road swing voters, right? They wanted to figure out how can we get to 50 plus one. And they found if they started talking about love and commitment, that suddenly people who might have previously been opposed were willing to say, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. I should be not standing in the way of someone who is in love. This is no threat to me. It's not a threat to my family. It's not a threat to my marriage. I need to step out of the way or maybe I can even help. And so what was really interesting was as they were doing that communications research, they came back to all the advocates and they said, we think we figured this out. We found a way to reach people who've previously not been paying attention. What happens? All the advocates are like, no, 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 no. We've already bought all our ads. We're good. We don't need to do this. But thankfully, they started to see the data and they said, we need to adjust. We need to adjust. And so, as you probably now know, history tells us, well, in Maine, Maryland, Minnesota, and Washington State, where it was on the ballot, after going 0 for 32, suddenly it won everywhere where the question was raised. Right. And that was transformational. Subsequently, the Supreme Court changes things. And now, 77% of Americans, which is... I don't know if I can get 77% of my family to agree on what to put Agreed. on a pizza. 77% of Americans, whatever your ideology, wherever you might live, are now firmly of the belief that marriage for gay and lesbian couples should and is now the law of our land. That is an incredible shift. Great in story. Opinion, right? And it's durable. It's lasted. Right. But that's about actually new kinds of tactics, which is applying new science and data and rigor to doing communications. Well, sort of new. I sort mean, of what, new. What they new did to is our what, field, I would say. Right. Because a Procter & Gamble product manager was doing that for, you Without know. Without a doubt. Yeah, back in but, the 60s, yes. And, and it worked, right? So that's why Procter & Gamble. So that's, but that's a fascinating. So thank you. That was a great answer to what tactics do you see working but we end each show here on What's Working in Washington by asking our guest to go meta, right? If you, so if you ran the world for some period of time, what would you start happening that isn't happening today or, and or, what would you stop happening that you see happening that you wish would cease? Okay, so I would stop, I would outlaw social media. Sweet. I would say, to your point on meta, no more meta. Yeah. No more Twitter. It appears we're watching $44 billion get lit on fire as we speak. As we speak. But I actually don't think they're very good for us. I think giving everyone a microphone is a beautiful idea in theory. Yep. In practice, it's poison. It's yep. really bad for you. And I say that as a parent of two young, soon-to-be teenage girls. I am frightened by the idea that they're going to get... Uh, Completely agree. Yeah. So I, I would ban That's social stopped. media. Let's okay. remember, when social media started, it was actually introduced to us as social networking, a way to build relationships and community. That's not what's happening right now. So I would stop that. Got it. Uh, if I was I got to do things by fiat. What would I start? Uh, I would start people being a little bit kinder with one another. There you go. I think we all need to be have a, give each other a little bit more grace. It's been a long, crazy couple of years and I don't think any of us have made head or tail of it yet or had a chance to process, but start by just being a little bit kind. Think about how your mom – imagine you're walking through the world with your mom sitting over your shoulder. Yeah. Do that. Wow. Sean Gibbons bringing it, bringing it hard in the last couple of minutes. That's Sean Gibbons, the CEO of the Communications Network here in Washington, D.C., with his How I Would Change the World comments to finish up in our conversation. It's been great having you here on What's Working in Washington. Thanks for having me, Mark. The team behind What's Working in Washington is a great group. The executive producer and editor is Tracy Madigan. Online content, Anna DeGraff. And that theme music you enjoy, performed by the Sunbathers.
You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast.